Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Bobby Turner, the principal and CEO of Turner Impact Capital, and previously the leader of Canyon's real estate investment platform. Bobby and his partners started Turner Impact Capital in 2014, and it now has $3 billion of investment potential in three areas. Workforce housing, where they've acquired 7,800 apartment units. Charter schools, with his partner Andre Agassi, which has built 103 public charter schools. And healthcare facilities investments, where they've developed or acquired 15 community healthcare centers so far. This makes the company one of the country's largest social impact investment funds. In the podcast, we talk about the two phases of Bobby's career. First as a moneymaker and pure wealth creator in the private equity world, particularly in real estate at Canyon, and his easing into impact investing through his early partnership with Magic Johnson. And we talk about Bobby's aha moment and his move into focusing exclusively on impact investing and finding the opportunity to balance impact alongside profits. Bobby is a compelling, passionate, and brilliant man who strongly makes the case for pursuing social good through the lens of business. You'll find Bobby's story and business interesting alongside other podcast guests who've discussed impact investing in housing, including Jonathan Rose, Daryl Carter, Ron Terwilliger, Jane Graff, and John Stewart, each of whom have been on Leading Voices. I want to thank our sponsor, JLL, whose support enables us to produce the podcast. JLL provides leadership and innovation in the real estate space globally. For more information, visit jll.com voices. Thank you for being a listener to Leading Voices. If you're enjoying the series, subscribe to the podcast, please rate us on iTunes, and pass your favorite episode on to a friend. If you have comments and questions, feel free to email me at my day job at Terra Search Partners. My email is matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I bet that you'll enjoy the conversation with Bobby. Unlike in most of the other episodes, we do not start with his or my introduction, so we just got right into it, so be prepared. Bobby starts right off talking about diversity within his organization and the huge challenges among average working Americans for finding housing that they can afford. Now on to the conversation with Bobby. As you may or may not know, we today, we're a relatively young company, we're only five years old, but we are actually uh, 208 employees at this point. We are 88% diverse meaning non-white men, and we are 52% women, meaning non-men. Right. And it's done not for any political reason, but it's being done because we are, at the end of the day, fiduciaries to our investors, and if we're investing in social injustice or real estate in areas like education and healthcare and housing, who in the family is responsible for making those decisions? It's not the man. Right. So who are we to sit around a table and discharge the very person who's making the decisions from the decision-making process? Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting group that we've built out. And how much... We'll kind of ease into part of the conversation, but how much does that level of diversity on your team help you understand your ultimate clients versus the investor clients? Maybe white guys understand investors pretty good, but the diverse people understand. I think we have actually two clients. You know, we have two missions and two obligations. We Mm -hmm. are a fiduciary to our investors. Right. But we're also a fiduciary to those residents that are living in the communities that have been neglected of investments for decades, if not generations. So for us to be successful at at navigating the intersection between profits and purpose, we have to be from both. We have to be from both profits and understand how to speak to our investors. And we have to be both from the communities that enables us to identify, quantify, and mitigate the risk associated with things like 
social injustice. Mm-hmm. It could be education, it could be housing, it could be income disparity. And as good as a sympathizer as I can be, nothing beats good old empathy. Right. So by having lived and experienced, having grown up in public housing, having been food insecure, the folks that work for me can truly empathize with the situation, therefore approach it and create more innovative solutions to these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was last week with one of the major nonprofit housing organizations. I'm talking about some strategic matters. And their strategic plan focuses all on impact, not on number of units. And in the past, 10 years ago, in that particular part of the business, it was, let's get more units, let's get more units, let's get more tax credits. But now it's, what are we doing to help people become whole and successful and find opportunities in their lives? Yeah, and that's an evolution and an ongoing evolution. I mean, the housing crisis is daunting and it's not sustainable. We have a particular interest in a particular subset of the housing industry, but start with the big issue. There's 43 million renter households in America today, mm-hmm. and that number will grow by probably 4 million additional rent household units over the next decade, mm-hmm. primarily immigrants and people of color. Today, one out of two renter households is rent burdened, uh-huh. meaning they're spending in excess of a third of their income on rent. One out of four, nearly 14 million renter households are severely rent burdened, spending upwards of 50, sometimes 60 or 70% of their income on rent. And that comes at the expense of food security, retirement security, health security. Candidly, Matt, it comes at the expense of hope. The obvious response would be is let's just build new workforce housing. And I'm not talking about low-income housing, which your your, your prior interviewee was uh, focused on, which is really addressing and tackling the needs of the most poor, people that are earning below 50% of the average median income, people that qualify for subsidized or tax credit or low-income housing. I'm focused rather on the very backbone of society, the essential service providers like teachers and policemen and firemen and allied healthcare workers who candidly make two much money to qualify for subsidized or compliant-driven housing, but not enough money for home ownership and or luxury rental. The problem there is that while the demand is large and it's growing, there is no new supply because as much as I've tried to create an innovative solution to build new naturally occurring workforce housing, the parameters don't work. Given where wages are today in America and given what the cost of building new construction, if you take the intersection between cost and wages, today if I built new workforce housing and only charged 30% of that family's average mean income on rent, I could drive about a 2% rate of return. Mm -hmm. That's not a market-driven rate. So our attitude was, okay, there's a huge demand, it's growing, there's no new supply, but what was criminal to us was the fact that the existing stock of workforce housing in this country is shrinking. And it's shrinking because every time traditional B and C property is being sold or put on the market, it's being bought by an opportunistic, more predatory investor. Value add. Value add, who's doing one of two things. They're either buying and scraping and they're putting up new condos or new luxury rentals. And of course, what's happening then is they're actually not uplifting a community. They're pushing the existing residents out and or they're buying and they're improving. They're putting in new common areas, new bathrooms and kitchens and carpets, putting in Caesar stone cabinets and zero or Tata self-flushing toilets. And a way to get a return on that capital is by increasing rents on the very consumer who's seen de minimis wage inflation over the last 40 years. What we realize is that that's not sustainable. And what we wanted to do was create a fund that could drive market rate returns, buying existing properties, and preserve the affordability. Now, you know, I was, I guess you, uh, as we talked about, and we'll talk about later, I graduated the Wharton School back in 1984 with a black belt in how to create wealth. Yeah. And I always assumed that with that wealth would come a corresponding sense of happiness. 
and it just didn't turn out that way. So you grew up in Baltimore. I did. And what took you to Wharton, and was the goal going to Wharton to get that black belt in wealth creation? Absolutely. As I say, my daughter once asked me, what did I want my epitaph to read? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, of course, said to her, Daddy went to Wharton. Daddy doesn't know what the word epitaph means. Mm-hmm. When she explained, it, what do you want your tombstone to read? It was very simple. When I was a young man, uh-huh. uh, I wanted my epitaph to read, Daddy had the most change in his pocket. I wanted to create wealth. Mm-hmm. And Wharton was obviously the best school at the time, still is today, for an undergraduate business degree. Right. So I went there and I graduated with a toolbox full of, of tools, which enabled me to create wealth. Mm-hmm. And that year was what? That was 1984. Okay. Went to work for Drexel Burnham Lambert. Mm-hmm. Uh, How old was Drexel at that time? Well, I mean, Drexel was 30 or 40 years. It started off as Drexel Firestone. But the junk bond era that we think of with Drexel, is it that... It was probably your... twice from the 70s, uh-huh. 80s. Mike okay. Milken started that early on. I was not in the junk bond division of the firm. Uh-huh. I was actually in the derivatives group. Uh-huh. Uh, the interest rate swaps, currency swaps, and derivatives, financial uh-huh. derivatives. I was actually the liaison between the high yield group and the derivatives group. So uh-huh. I spent a significant amount of my time on the West Coast with Milken's group. And uh-huh. that is how I eventually became one of the partners at Canyon because those were the people that I interfaced with. Right. And did you do that in New York or had you moved then with New Drexel York. to... Okay. I was spending half my time. I was a young man. I was single. Right. It's easy. Uh, so I enjoyed the opportunity to take a plane out to California and spend a couple of days uh, every week or every other week in Los Angeles. Right. So it was an exciting time. Uh-huh. And, you know, Drexel failed in 1990. The division that I was working for at Drexel, which was Drexel Trading Corporation, was absorbed by AIG. So I actually ended up at AIG without skipping a beat right. and was there for a couple years, then took one year at Bank Indo Suez, which is a French bank trading derivatives, uh-huh. and then joined Canyon and my partners there. So don't skip over that. So let's slow down a little bit on and when you did Canyon, did you move to the West Coast? I did. Okay. Yeah. So, so I you was had joining former Canyon. colleagues? So the founding partners were Josh Friedman, uh, Mitch Julis, and Chris Evanson. And I uh-huh. was very close with Chris, who actually worked with his wife huh? at Drexel in the okay. derivatives group. Chris persuaded me to move out to California and join Canyon. And my responsibility joining Canyon was to build out a real estate division. The founding partners in the firm were had worked for Mike Milken and they were credit experts in the high yield business. Uh-huh. Um, I had had a decent amount of exposure to the real estate business because a large amount of the business we did on the derivatives desk was doing interest rate swaps and interest rate hedging for real estate developers, clients of Drexel on the mortgage banking side. Uh-huh. So pause for a sec. So first of all, what was it like for this Baltimore Wharton... New York guy to move to the West Coast. It's a different vibe. It was an incredible opportunity for me. I am a very much an outdoorsman. I'm a motocross enthusiast. I'm a mountain biker. Uh, I play tennis and basketball uh, three or four times a week. So the opportunity to be in an environment mm-hmm. where it was warm and sunny 320 days a year pretty cool. was pretty intriguing. It was also an opportunity for me to do something where I could pursue a career that was aligned with my interests. You know, many people have jobs. I didn't really want a job. Uh, I wanted to get up every morning and get out there and do something that I was interested in. Right. Uh, I thought that would make me a more interesting person. Mm-hmm. And I was offered the opportunity to start the real estate group at Canyon back in 1992 and was able to build that into a pretty large uh, business. Sure and any sense that 
doing this in California, not New York, is not a crowded place versus New York, the center of the universe for that kind of business? Um, as you'll learn over the next hour, and people will tell you who've known me for a long time, I'm not a people person. I'm fundamentally an introvert. I uh-huh. work very hard to pretend that I'm extroverted, but it's uh-huh. very exhausting. Uh-huh. I was never in love with living in New York City. I found the the intensity, the culture, everything about it, it wasn't aligned with who I was as a human being. I would prefer the mountains than the city. Mm-hmm. So I, I was happy to move out. I think I'm an extrovert, but I moved to the West Coast from D.C. 20 years ago, 23 years ago, and it was heaven once I got here. Yes. And it had been heaven, particularly when I would get off an airplane to San Francisco in the summer versus get off an airplane into the Washington heat in the summer. That's correct. It was like, I got to go live there. Well, and it is beautiful. You still have the opportunity that when you get off the heat, your hair frizzes. <laughs> Mine no longer does. Not much. So we'll, we'll go. Okay. So you had done real estate when you get to Canyon. That, but they give you the real estate desk. Yeah. And you create a business for That's that. That's correct. So talk about kind of how that matured and happened. I know you got to like six, this was a big business. So over, over a period of time, we raised multiple billions of dollars. We started off as a credit shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was our expertise. Having been at Drexel, we were credit right. people. We were, were high yield lenders. Right. So our first initiative into the real estate business was as a high yield lender. Right. Uh, we were doing senior secured high yield loans. We mm-hmm. were buying defaulted and distressed debt. Mm-hmm. We did that for many years. And as we educated ourselves and became more proficient in real estate, we were to take more risks and move down the uh, or up the uh, risk chain. We went from uh, senior debt to mezzanine debt, from mezzanine debt to preferred equity, from preferred equity to equity huh. over a period of 20 years. And also the timing of that, because 92, you're coming out of the SNL crisis. So there's a lot of bad debt out there. Everyone was playing that side of the business. So you matured with the industry Correct. towards that place. And it was a wonderful time. And, you know, we had a particular expertise having come from Drexel. You know, we were experts at structuring. We were also experts at destructuring financial securities and asset-backed securities. In real estate, of course, mortgage loans were real estate secured. And we had the legal expertise and the knowledge how to deconstruct these investments to get to the underlying real estate itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that requires a heavy staff that's playing time and putting muscle into these deals. So granular muscle to make them work. It does. You know, we've always been big believers that, you know, real estate is a cottage industry. It's not a financial industry, that uh, there's no two pieces of real estate that are similar. So therefore, it is a industry that requires intensive and rigorous local knowledge mm-hmm. to truly identify, quantify, and mitigate the risks. One of the things that I learned at Drexel and at Wharton, that there was four ways to create wealth in life. Number one was to uh, inherit it, which I failed at. Uh-huh. Uh, number two was to marry it, which I hear is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number three is to speculate. And the vast majority of investors that I've met in my life are speculators. They're speculating Mm -hmm. on supply and demand imbalances. They're building something and they're hoping that people will patronize or buy or service. They're betting on interest rates or cap rate compressions. And in my 30 plus years in the industry, I've yet to find anyone who can consistently speculate well. The fourth way, which was really the Drexel way, which was value investing. It's not as glorious or glamorous as the first three, but it's more disciplined and it's more reliable. Value investing requires one to scour the opportunity set for opportunities that are overlooked, misperceived, difficult to underwrite, or maybe require unique skills. Mm-hmm. Once you recognize these opportunities, if you can do three things well, identify, quantify, and mitigate risks, you can mm-hmm. then drive alpha for portfolios. Mm-hmm. And that was really our business to drive low or uncorrelated returns to the broader indices 
producing diversification for our investors' portfolios. Uh-huh. Let's go back for a sec. So we'll bounce around in time periods here, but you mentioned the Drexel way. And I'm so curious what the lessons learned were and what you and your partners, all of whom were in that crucible of experience, what you all brought to your business, both pro and con, and negative lessons learned as well as positive lessons learned about how to then go create what became really, really big business. You know, and again, recognizing that my partners at Canyon, we were in different industries at Canyon. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting is that both of those industries were somewhat responsible for the eventual failure of not only Drexel, but eventually AIG mm-hmm. and many of the larger financial institutions because, you know, Drexel was a leveraged house where we were funding high yield. What we've learned is leverage is a competency in good markets and bull markets, but leverage becomes a magnifying glass right. in bad markets. Uh-huh. Um, so I always tell people that uh, leverage is really just a magnifying glass. Likewise, I was in the derivatives group. It was the derivatives group at AIG that brought down that organization and many other organizations in the Great Recession because people didn't really recognize how leveraged these financial uh, derivatives were and what sort of risks were taking. Mm-hmm. What it did for me, and I think everyone at Canyon, is we're very risk adverse. Our job, again, is very fundamentally bottoms up, rigorous due diligence, make sure that there's collateral value backing your investment, Uh identify, quantify, and mitigate the risks, Uh but also have the humility to recognize that we don't always know and recognize all the risks so that by expanding the universe and the set of knowledge on the team Mm -hmm. would enable us to be better investors at identifying those risks. So by Mm -hmm. way of example, when we started investing in the urban communities in partnership with Magic Johnson, there were very few private equity real estate funds that were willing to invest in these neglected markets. Mm -hmm. There, There were perceived risks or real risks that required an identification of that risk. So when did the Magic Johnson venture happen. How long into your period at Canyon? So I joined Canyon probably in 1992. It was 1998 when Magic and I came together. And it was a result of a real great lesson and education I got back in 1996 when I bought a property in Manhattan up in Harlem. Uh I had actually bought the Washburn Wire site, Uh which was an abandoned copper extruding plant between 116th Street and 119th Street in the FDR Drive with a local New York-based operator called the Blumenfeld Development Corporation. Uh And I remember this was an amazing opportunity. We paid $3 million for six contiguous acres, three contiguous blocks of Manhattan. And everybody that I came across told me that I had overpaid for the property. I would ask, by how much do you think I overpaid? They'd say, how much did you pay for it? Mm -hmm. I'd say $3 million. They'd say, exactly. That's That's how much you overpaid. Because what they saw was urban blight. Mm -hmm. This really was the poster child for urban blight. It had been abandoned. We didn't find environmental contamination on the property because the way they had transacted business. What we did find was two decomposed bodies and hundreds of vials of spent crack cocaine. And that was enough to dissuade the traditional opportunistic institutional investment from buying that property. What I saw and what our partners at the Blumenfeld Development Corporation saw was a million residents within one mile with tens of billions of dollars of disposable income of which upwards of 70% of that income was being spent outside of the community. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there was no options. And there was a misperception of the investment opportunity. So our business model was we were going to buy this property, and we were going to build about 650,000 square feet of community-serving retail. Mm -hmm. In 1997... 
our group had the opportunity to sit in front of the community board district 11 and try to convince upon the community board that they should support a change in zoning. And at the end of the presentation, the board basically concluded that we were just there to make money off the community. Mm-hmm. When asked, why would you say that? And the comment was, is you're here to make money because you're not listening to what we want. You're telling us what we need. And we asked, well, what do you need? Mm-hmm. The response was, is we need you to control the hours of operation of your proposed Home Depot. I remember saying, well, I know where you're going with that, but we're not going to be able to control the hours of Home Depot. I know who wants Home Depot traffic in their community at all hours. And with all due respect, I said to the chairman, Home Depot is going to invest $200 million, hire 350 people. I can't tell them when to shut down. The response back was from the panel is once again, you all are proving that you know how to talk and not listen. We're not asking you to have Home Depot shut down. We want them open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. To which we responded, why would you want that? To which they responded, well, it's obvious to us, the least of it being your skin color, that you all are not from this community. Because had you grown up in this community, you'd recognize the following. The minute the commercial traffic vacates Mm -hmm. this neighborhood, that's when the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the gangs take claim to the streets. If you give us 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week commercial traffic, we'll give you the entitlements and we'll give you the support you need. And that was one of those sort of pivotal moments in my career where I recognized that no matter how smart I was, smart's not enough. You need to be wise. And wisdom means walking in with your eyes and ears wide open. Mm -hmm. But I realized that this was a tremendous opportunity and Harlem wasn't unique. Harlem was a microcosm of Baltimore, of Philadelphia, of Cleveland, of Boston, of many underserved, neglected communities that were populated by ethnically diverse immigrants and people of color. Mm -hmm. I went to a basketball game in 1998 with Magic Johnson Mm -hmm. and he asked me what I was working on these days. He and I were acquaintances and I told him that I was working on an urban fund. And over the din of the crowd, he thought I said Irvin Fund. And of course, that's his name, Irvin Magic Johnson. And he said, I'm so honored. I cannot believe that someone wants to do an Irvin Fund. (laughs) To which I responded, this is not an Irvin Fund. It is an Urban Fund. But maybe we can call it the Irvin Urban Fund. The first argument we really had, however, was the next day in his office when we talked about let's partner because what he could bring to the table was truly a unique and unparalleled understanding of the urban consumer from the retail side. Because for the last decade, he had partnered with Magic Johnson Theaters with Sony Lowe's uh, right. Cineplex. So he'd been in the community he doing this work. He had a partnership with Starbucks called Urban Coffee Houses. Right. He had a partnership with uh, Carlson Restaurants with TGI Fridays. And he was going to bring that knowledge to the table, we would bring the financial literacy and the financial knowledge to the table. So I bet him in 1998, he asked me how long I thought it would take to raise the fund. We were going to raise about $300 million. Mm -hmm. And I bet him it would take us about six months to raise the fund. I mean, the fundamentals were amazing. 35% of America was minority, growing at seven times the rate of the general population. By 2020, minorities were majorities. There's a huge mismatch between supply and demand. There's a lack of capital going into these markets. Canyon, our track record in real estate was seller, and he was Magic Johnson. Who wasn't going to invest? He looked at me and said, God, I thought I was getting a smart partner. I said, what do you mean? He goes, six months. It will take us two years to raise this fund, Bobby. He goes, institutional capital looks like you, not me. And institutional capital will not recognize the opportunity. It will take us two years. So Matt, I bet him. I bet him his floor seats. I won't tell you what he (laughs) asked of me, um, but I was pretty confident. I bet him two years. He bet me six months. Had you bet on both of us, you would have been right. It took us two years and six months to raise the first fund. Well, I thought you'd say three months, actually. Yeah. 
two years and six months, and it truly was a disheartening journey for me because I never really believed what I heard, just how deeply rooted bigotry and prejudice was in the financial services industry. Uh-huh. But we were able to, by hook or by crook, we raised $300 million over two and a half years. Uh, we went on to do 14 investments. Uh, at the end of the day, we did about a 14% return to our investors, about a 1.7 equity multiple, right. and it enabled us to raise fund two, which was $600 million, which took us two and a half months, and fund three, which was a billion dollars, which took us two and a half weeks. And fund three was most recently realized back in 2018. It did about a 19.6% return, gross return, about a 15.6% return net of all fees. Hmm. So when we think about, can you do good and do well? Well, we did great financially, but what did we do by community? I mean, I think what Magic and my legacy will be forever is the fact that by creating this wealth for our investors, at the same time, we were responsible for the creation of 10,000 permanent jobs. Mm -hmm. We built millions and millions of square feet of community-serving retail that served the communities. We were responsible for the creation of incremental tax revenues, wage taxes, sales taxes, real estate taxes that Mm -hmm. could then be reinvested in the form of social services into these communities. And that was my gateway into impact investing because that to me was so much more rewarding as a human being than just getting a 14% return by buying a piece of distressed debt and making money off of someone else's misfortune. Right. So talk a little bit about how you entered this in that deal in Harlem, how you entered the relationship with Magic, and how you came out of it. And this is a personal question. So when you went into this, were you the guy with a PhD in how to create wealth? Were you the guy looking for returns, or were you also someone now curious or passionate or dispassionate about making a difference in those communities then, way back then? I don't think you can teach empathy. I was always a very empathetic human being. My Uh mother was a Baltimore City school teacher who taught learning disabled children. So I was always sensitive to needs. My father was a capitalist, Mm -hmm. um, was in the running shoe business, started a company called Brooks Shoes back in the 60s. Wow. Uh, In the 70s, um, by the way, there's another lesson where leverage is not a competency. Uh My father lost his business when I was a freshman in college by being over leveraged. Mm -hmm. But one of the great lessons he taught me was in my freshman year of high school, he sent me down to Aguadilla, Puerto Rico to work on the assembly line in a shoe factory to learn a shoe business. Mm -hmm. I sat on an assembly line sniffing rubber cement for about six weeks, came home, he asked me what I had learned. And I said, I learned what you sent me to learn. I learned how to make shoes. He looked at me and paused and said, you learned nothing. You Mm -hmm. will go back. Mm -hmm. I went back the next summer. And to my surprise, the same people that had been on either side of the machine that I was working on were still there. And to my surprise, I asked them, one of the gentlemen's name was Jose. I said, Jose, what are you doing here? He goes, what do you mean what am I doing here? He goes, this is my job. And I realized, and when I went back, he goes, what'd you learn? What I learned is I realized how lucky I was that I had choices. Mm -hmm. And he goes, never forget how lucky you are and recognize that with that luck comes a sense of responsibility to pay your good luck forward. Mm -hmm. So for the vast majority of my career, I was a capitalist and a philanthropist because I always had the need to be a giver. Right. And I struggled at both, Matt. And what I mean by that is as a capitalist, I always assumed that by creating wealth, there'd be a corresponding sense of happiness. And I was able to disprove that fundamentally over and over again. Now, wealth is necessary so that you're not living in survival mode, but wealth won't give you anything other than a more comfortable form of misery. Mm -hmm. It didn't make me happy. So I guess in my early or mid-30s, 
to gain a sense of balance or maybe buy redemption because mm-hmm. all I was doing was going to work, making money. Right. I became a philanthropist pretty actively and I struggled there too. And it wasn't with the moral discomfort that came from making money from people's misfortunes, but it was an emotional discomfort that came from throwing money at people's misfortunes. Because as a financier, I hold people accountable for my investment and charity is an investment. And what I realized is the vast majority of organizations that my wife and I were funding really were just putting Band-Aids on issues. Mm-hmm. We were funding legacies of dependencies. These organizations weren't innovative. They weren't scalable. And it wasn't satisfying to me. And I concluded at 35 that if you wanted to treat an issue in society, then the government and philanthropy are just fine. But if you want to cure, really cure, you have to harness market forces to create a for-profit solution. And at that point in my life, I did something that my wife thought was impossible of most men, and this man in particular, and that is I evolved. And I evolved from a capitalist whose sole metric of success was making money to an investor who believed that I could make money while at the same time I could change the opportunity set for so many Americans that were suffering the injustices of social determination. Having your life expectancy, having your healthcare outcomes predetermined based upon where you were born in what zip code Mm -hmm. is disheartening to me. And that was around the time that I had partnered with Magic. And it was all coming together. It was serendipitous that Magic said, let's go into the urban markets. It was serendipitous that my dear friends, the Blumenfelds from Syasset, Long Island, approached us to go 50-50 in the Washburn Wire site. And it was just luck. You know, mm-hmm. someone, I was on a stage recently with Andre Agassi, and someone asked us, what are you most fearful of in life? And you both are incredibly successful. And I remember my response, because it's just off the cuff, and I said, what I'm most fearful of is being discovered for the fraud that I am. And someone asked, well, how, where are you a fraud? You look at your success. And I said, you know, but why am I worthy of my success? That's, I'm smart. I don't question that I'm smart. But there are millions of people as smart if not smarter. My son always says, Dad, if you're one in a million, there's like 8,000 of you in China. Exactly right. So I'm smart and I work hard. I work really hard, but there are millions of people who work even harder than I do. So the reality is I recognize that what led me to my success, a lot of it had to do was just luck. And with that luck comes almost, and I'm not embarrassed by my success. I'm proud of my success because I have worked hard. But with my success comes with me a sense of responsibility to pay my good luck forward. And when we look at society today, the social commentary is really bad. And that's one of the reasons that we started Turner Impact Capital. I mean, we have, when 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, when 43 million Americans are on food stamps, when one out of four renters are spending 60 or 70% of their income on rent at the expense of food security and health security, when... 1.2 million kids dropped out of high school last year because high schools are failing to provide them with needed skills to be successful in the 21st century. And by the way, that's a horrible thing because a high school dropout is eight times more likely to go to jail than a high school graduate, where we spend four times as much to incarcerate than we do to educate. So all these issues were bothersome to me, and I just couldn't live a happy, healthy, balanced life knowing that my sole metric of success was making money. And that sort of led me to spending more and more time in the social impact space. And by the way, 
my partners at Canyon were very encouraging and very supportive. I was able to spend about 30% of my time doing these endeavors on the Canyon Johnson Urban Funds. I had partnered with Andre Agassi to build public charter schools. Uh, I had been not a failed philanthropist, but I had been a very active philanthropist in Los Angeles building public charter schools. With the help of Bill and Melinda Gates and Eli Broad, we had formed an organization called the Pacific Charter School Development Corporation, Uh which was a not-for-profit builder for best-in-class charter schools. We built 15,000 school seats over seven years. You'd think we'd be excited. I was personally incredibly disheartened because there was 32,000 kids on the whitelist. I'm twice the failure. During the Great Recession, I went back to Bill Gates. I went back to Eli Broad and said, we need more money. They had gone on to other things. I went to other philanthropists and realized that when you most need philanthropy, it's least available. Mm-hmm. During recessions, people don't feel wealthy. And I concluded once again that our reliance upon the government and our philanthropy to tackle our most daunting challenges really handicaps our outcomes. So. I began to spend more and more time. About five years ago, my daughter came home from school one day. She was a junior in high school and said, Dad, why do you look so unhappy all the time? And I said, is it really that obvious? She goes, yeah, it's that obvious. I see it in your eyes. She goes, I don't see it in your smile or what you say, but I see it in your eyes. She goes, what's going on? I said, well, I will tell you that I've come to a crossroads in life. I had turned 50 and I was looking at the number of people that I lost in my life. And I had realized that my accomplishments that I got up to do every day really weren't aligned with my values. I wanted to be this social impact investor. I wanted to spend 100% of my waking hours using business as a force for good, creating innovative solutions to tackle our most daunting challenges. And I really couldn't do that within the hedge fund environment. So she said, oh, I'm confused. You're the one who always says to me, Dad, it's easy for most people to dream while they're asleep. But it's those that have the courage to dream while they're awake. It's those that'll change the world. Where's your courage? You always preach. Why are you not practicing what you preach? Mm -hmm. And that led to me leaving Canyon. Mm -hmm. I left about five and a half years ago so that I could spend the balance of my career, which, by the way, will be another 35 years, uh, harnessing market forces to create innovative solutions to tackle the most daunting challenges. Our social commentary is horrible. It's not sustainable. And it's defined by two issues today. Think about the aristocracy we have in this country. When one... 1% or call it 5% controls 99% of its wealth. Most people think that will undermine society. I don't really think that's the problem, but it is a problem. And the problem gets worse and exacerbated when that 1% believe that they are above the law. So we take a look at the most recent Varsity Blues college scandal. Here are the most... I don't know what the right word is. These are the wealthiest of families in the country. In the right zip codes already. In the right zip codes already. But yet they don't have enough. Mm Mm-hmm. They're entitled, and they felt it was okay to buy or bribe or cheat to get their kids into college that, candidly, their children weren't deserving to. So what does that say about the lack of morality or the moral barometer of the elite in this country? It's a problem. On the other end of the spectrum, the CDC's annual report said that for the fifth year in a row in this country, infant mortalities rose. Fifth year in a row. Life expectancy fell for the third year in a row. That is indication that our social safety net is failing. The two of those cannot play sustainably in a sandbox together. Mm -hmm. So there will be some form of revolution. And that was just more the impetus for me that what was my legacy going to be? Was my epitaph going to read as my conversation from my daughter, daddy had the most change in his pocket? Or was it going to read daddy made the most change in the world? And that's what I wanted to read. And that's why I did gather up the courage, left Canyon after 23 years as a titan of industry, and started all over. 
And you know, one of the questions you've asked people in your in your prior things are there ever those aha moments? Oh my God, I'm a leader, but aren't I afraid? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was afraid. I bet. Of course, I think fear is what has driven my success. I mean, I think I fundamentally I'm an insecure human being, but that insecurity drives my success because I don't want to be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. But I was scared. But I wasn't scared of success because uh, I knew that would come. I was scared of failure with the new initiative and the new platform because the consequences this time around in my career, the consequences of failure didn't just impact my investors, but the failure to build that school in the Anacosta area mm-hmm. of Washington, D.C., directly across from the Woodland Terrace public housing right. project, that didn't just impact me or my investors, that it would impact tens and tens of thousands of kids' opportunities to have upper mobility. And also, this is now you. This is not going into a business that's been tried and true. You proved it at Canyon that these funds could be raised and you could do this successfully. But now your name's on the door solely. It's your vision. Well, there's a test. And you're going to set it up in every way that exhibits what your values are about. Of course. And the question was, were my values shared? by mm-hmm. investors. Mm-hmm. Because 20 years ago when Magic and I went out or 25 years ago to raise the first fund, there were lots of naysayers and there's lots of skepticism about impact investing. Well, my goodness, profits and purpose can't play nicely in the sandbox. They need to be segregated. Mm-hmm. I mean, anytime you superimpose a societal metric on a financial return, you're gonna sacrifice yield. Well, I am in a unique position that for the last 25 years, I've proven that's not the case. And if done correctly, social impact investing can actually drive better risk-adjusted returns than other more speculative real estate investments. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, and you snuck in the word, consciously risk-adjusted returns. So talk about kind of the opportunistic investing in real estate, value-add investing in real estate, core investing in real estate. And if you buy the workforce housing existing property that we talked about early in the conversation, you buy it, hold it long-term, don't pop rents too much. Right, so then how do I make money? Yeah, how do you make money? money? And on a risk-adjusted basis, it's a fair deal on what it should be. But talk about that. So let's start by number one is why does it generate risk-adjusted returns? (laughs) Because again, we take a look at what the demand drivers are for real estate. And my business is not to try to create demand. Okay, Mm -hmm. so if you're going to build a hotel, you're going to try to create demand. You don't know that it exists, you hope it does. If you build high-end luxury condos or build destination retail, you're speculating. Investing, by the way, if you're a speculator, a bull market will bail you out. A rising tide lifts all ships, bad underwriting is forgiven, okay? But in a bad market, in a bear market, what happens to demand for those underlying infrastructure, for high-end retail, high-end condos? It gets eviscerated, mm-hmm. okay? Now, let's talk about charter school seats. There's 1.2 million kids on a wait list for a charter school today. A $20,000 a school seat, that's a $22 billion infrastructure opportunity today to build out infrastructure for charter schools. What happens to the demand for those charter school seats in a bull market when the Dow Jones goes to 25000 Probably nothing. It stays the same. Mm-hmm. What happens to the demand for those charter school seats when the Dow Jones drops to zero? Absolutely nothing. So investing in social impact, the underlying drivers, the underlying demand is less correlated to the broader indices, which means you create alpha and diversification for your portfolio. Mm-hmm. That's why you can drive better risk-adjusted returns. As I tell my investors all the time, I'm a black belt at underperforming bull markets. But conversely, I'm a black belt at outperforming bear markets. That's my job. So now go to housing. 
My God, there's a huge demand for housing. There's no new supply. The existing stock is shrinking. And Bob, you want to buy and preserve the affordability. But how are you going to drive market rate returns? Well, number one is I went to Wharton. Now I'll put on my financial hat. I'm a black belt in creating wealth. Two ways to drive profits. Number one is to increase revenues which I don't want to do. I don't want to increase rents. Well, what's the other way to drive profitability? Decrease expenses. Decrease expenses. Now, having been in the urban markets and worked with Magic for 20 years, I understand the nuances of living in workforce housing. Mm -hmm. And I recognize from the investments with Magic that the biggest expense of workforce housing wasn't insurance, wasn't capital improvements, but it was turnover. There's no pride in rentership in workforce housing. No one works two jobs a day, comes home to a B or C class property, a B or C neighborhood, B or C neighborhood, and says, God, I love living here. Right. So therefore, it's a very transient population. And in fact, on average, workforce housing in minority communities experiences 100% turnover every 24 months. Now, again, I'm not talking about rent control yeah, not subsidized or subsidized. That, that's that's no turn. But the naturally occurring workforce housing. So my theory was... And we started this with magic. If I could create a pride in rentership, if I could provide essential services that made people have a relationship with their landlord, mm-hmm. they would stay longer. Now, because my firm, as I mentioned before, is 88% diverse, meaning non-white men, right. 52% women, meaning non-men, mm-hmm. where we lack diversity is in our fanaticism where we are 100% fanatical trying to create innovative solutions, which means we don't just collaborate together, but we conspire to figure out how we can identify, quantify, and mitigate risks. And what we know from our experience in underserved communities is what's most important to a workforce family when they're selecting where they're going to rent a property. Three things. Access to great education for their kids. Well, name me another private equity real estate fund in this country that's also in education. So we understand education. We know how to underwrite and look at the local universe of schools. And if they're bad schools, what can we do to augment education? We know that safety is critical. And the interdependency between schools and healthcare and housing are obvious. Think about this. We can do amazing things for a child between the hours of eight and five. But if they go home to an unsafe, unnurturing home environment, everything you've accomplished during the day goes out the window. So we recognize that we had to enrich our communities with education. We had to enrich our communities with safety and with healthcare. So what our business model was is we buy a property and we will take a select group of units and we'll set them aside as currency. Yeah. Call it 2% of our units. Maybe if it's a 500 unit property, we'll take, call it 10 units. The first place we do is we have a secretary of education. Her name's Carmen Maldonado who works for us. Carmen graduated with a master's in education, went to work in the Philadelphia public school districts, then went to work for the Kip Foundation. Carmen is our secretary of education. Her job is to go out and fill those units. She recruits five teachers and their families to live in our properties at a subsidized rent. Mm -hmm. But in return for the subsidy, what those teachers are responsible for is providing mentoring and tutoring services, both cognitive and non-cognitive, for the children of our residents. Mm -hmm. So we have enrichment centers at all of our properties. And every school night of every school day of every school year, one of those teachers is staffing that mentoring lounge for the benefit of the children. Now, if you're living in our property, you're spending 30 or 35% of your income on rent, but you can never afford to augment or supplement your child's education. Number two, we subsidize housing for law enforcement agents mm-hmm. and their families. Mm-hmm. Randy Slaughter, he's our Secretary of Defense. He's our uh-huh. former DEA officer. Uh-huh. Perfect name for a Secretary yes. of Defense, Randy Slaughter. Randy goes out into the community 
and sits down with local law enforcement and their watch commanders. Because if I were to walk into the local police precinct, I would have no credibility. Right. But Randy has tremendous credibility. And we work in partnership with the law enforcement agencies, and we subsidize housing for, let's say, three law enforcement agents and their families. And we give them free housing. And in return for the free housing, Randy has created a very novel compensation program of how they pay us. Number one is we work with the squad commanders to make sure that our law enforcement agents are assigned a squad car and they park them out front. Now we know that a drug dealer is more likely to avoid a complex housing complex that has a police car parked out front than not. So park your car out front. Number uh-huh. two, make your presence known. Walk around that property. When the girls, we sponsor Girl Scout troops, when the little girls are selling cookies and their tag-alongs, your law enforcement, tag along with them and make your presence known. You have to live there. You can't sublet. And you're responsible for organizing and overseeing a community watch program. And what we do know is that regardless of how we buy and supplement security with four higher uh, security units, I have learned in my experience that the security guard is making $20 an hour. When there is a gunshot that emanates from one of the buildings, the likelihood is that that law enforcement or that hired safety agent is running away from the gunshot. Absolutely. But that law enforcement agent that has pledged his life to law enforcement in our family, in our property, is running right towards it. The third is healthcare. Most of our residents are underinsured or uninsured. And if they even have insurance, they're not getting home till nine o'clock at night. And the only place they can take their kids for healthcare is the local emergency ward. So we subsidize housing for nurse practitioners, for allied healthcare workers, and we sponsor job fairs and health fairs and cooking classes. And it's this wonderful enrichment program. So we own 8,000 units that we bought over the last four years. Mm-hmm. And when we bought the properties on average, we have tenant satisfaction levels of about 35%. Today, our portfolio sits in under four years at 95% tenant satisfaction. And that is because we have enriched our communities with 38,000 program participant hours. These are tutoring classes, health classes, financial literacy classes. 38,000 has driven this pride and rendership. Now, that's exciting, that's purpose. But unless purpose translates into profits, How am I going to drive market rate returns? Well, the reality is it's obvious to us, to me, that if you were purposeful, it would become profitable because if you could create that pride and rendership, people would stay longer. Mm -hmm. And we have analytically proven, using the data, Mm -hmm. is by increasing tenant satisfaction from 35% to 95%, we have driven lease durations in under four years by nearly a third. It's gone from 24 months to over 30 months. Number two, we have driven down economic loss, turnover, vacancy band debt by nearly 20%. The number of incidences on our properties have fallen by 44%. Mm-hmm. That means lower insurance costs. Our deferred maintenance costs have fallen. And that's because when people have a pride in rendership, they treat the properties better. So we're proving out that doing good and doing well needn't be exclusive. And in fact, if done correctly, there's a symbiotic relationship between the profits and purpose. And that's what we call social impact investing. Makes total sense. So, but some questions. It sounds like Nirvana to me. So it sounds a beautiful business model. And from a social holistic standpoint, beautiful business model, from a return standpoint, once you get the property to this place you have brought it to, then what do you do about rents or what do you do about a hold period because you've created your value in the first two years? And that goes back to what do I worry about? Where is my fear? In our school funds and in our health care funds, 
we build a great infrastructure for proven operators, not-for-profit operators who mm-hmm. have clinical performance or educational performance. And our mission there is we're a bridge to ownership. We build these great facilities. We enter right. the long-term leases. But once that not-for-profit has four or five years of both academic or clinical and financial performance, we help them buy the facility from us by accessing cheaper cost of capital in the municipal bond markets. Mm-hmm. That doesn't translate into the housing fund because our residents can't buy it. So it would be so disheartening to me that at the end of my private equity real estate fund, I have to sell the investments. The only person available to sell them to would be that opportunistic investor who doesn't believe in my business model. So I do worry about that, but I don't worry so much because again, I have the courage to dream. And what we will do with our portfolio is we raised our first fund it was $264 million. We bought 8,000 units. It's distributing about a four, between a four and a four and a half percent dividend on a yearly basis. We're on target to do about a 10 to 10 and a half percent return, net of fees to investors. What we will do with that is we'll roll it up with our second fund, which we're finishing up a fundraise right now. It'll be a $400 million fundraise. Mm-hmm. Between fund one and fund two, we'll have 20,000 units, about $2 billion of real estate, and we will take it public on the New York Stock Exchange as the first publicly traded B corporation that built into its constitution is the ongoing preservation of affordability for essential service providers in this country. Now, do we think there's a market for it? Call any investment banker, call any money manager today, and ask them how much demand there is for ESG and SRI investments. Mm -hmm. And they will tell you that it is insatiable. And most of impact investing today, there's $20 trillion of money allocated towards impact investing. Right. But the fact is, is 99.9% of that is in what I would call passive investments mm-hmm. in mutual funds that are using social impact as a risk filter so that they can avoid or divest of bad companies. Mm-hmm. Or you might have an ESG fund that is curating companies that have demonstrated that they're incorporating socially responsible practices into their bylaws, maybe gender equality at the board, gender equality for pay, and maybe environmentally responsible supply chains. But all of these funds, none of them are putting new money in to tackle issues. They're just buying and selling existing securities. The demand for social impact right now is only being satisfied in the private equity world like funds like myself. Uh All the underwriters on Wall Street, all the bankers, all the investment advisors said that if there were public securities, if you could democratize opportunities for the average investor to buy into a publicly traded REIT multifamily that has the same FF&O from its operations as a luxury residential REIT, they think that it would trade at a premium to other residential REITs because the demand is that strong for ESG and SRI driven investments. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not that comes true, I don't know. But my downside, first of all, my first job is I'm a fiduciary to investors. So we did have to sell one of our properties recently because I was not able to get an economy of scale in the market because we have our own dedicated property management company. So we did sell it. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that the subsequent owner will maintain the same discipline we did that they did promise they would. It was a faith-based organization, so maybe they will. So it's a nonprofit in that case. No, it wasn't a non- It was a pension fund. Okay. Uh, but it was backed by a pension fund right. who was faith-based. So we're hoping that they have some good intentions. Okay. Notwithstanding... We were able to sell it at north of a 20% return, north of a two times equity multiple. So the downside for my investors is who doesn't want to invest in workforce housing? The demand is only going to get stronger and will make money regardless if I can go public. 
or if I can do private. Now, it'll be disheartening to me if I sell my 20,000 units to a predatory investor who scrapes them, but my first job is to make money, because if I can't make money, I can't continue to, to use money to change the world. Fair deal. So, someone asked me, was I afraid of competition? I tell my business model all the time. And I tell people I'm not afraid of competition. I'm afraid that there's not competition. Right. The demand for this product and this business model huge. is huge. I also think that we approach the business from a profit side, mm-hmm. not a purpose side. Mm-hmm. I think that investors that come into social impact investing from the purpose side don't necessarily have the, the vocational skills or the acumen to create an innovative business model that is sustainable. So again, I don't know, the, I know the names by, by name, but right. I'm not sure what the underlying business model is. Some of the things you're doing is what traditionally in the housing world, nonprofits have done, although they play with low income, they have had trouble with the missing middle, which is what you're talking about. It's point one. And then point two is it's hard not to chase that extra one, two, three points of yield. And that one, two, three points of yield either means you're selling it to someone you're going to guess what they might do. Or um, that you'll push rents harder. You're going to push rents responsibly, but not too hard in your model. So, I'm, and, and your value's been created in the work that you did. So you delivered a stable property. But we are, by the way, we do increase rents along with inflation. Of course, with so. right. inflation, of course, because if our expenses increase. <laughs> Our expenses increase. We've got right. to have a corresponding increase in revenues. Notwithstanding, I'm actually fairly optimistic mm-hmm. that the definition of success in the institutional world, institutional mm-hmm. investment world, is changing. Right. That business has to be used as a force for good. Our reliance upon the government and philanthropy to tackle these issues is not working. And also a force for not bad. I, yes. I don't know what a force for good is and a force for not bad, but a they're interesting, different. And again, if we do designate as a B corporation, we actually can, you know, if there was an activist shareholder came in and said, we uh-huh. want to buy you because it's cheap and we want to increase rents, we would have uh, legal grounds. Because B to- sets it up with constraints. Exactly. With purpose and constraints. Exactly. So let's talk about other parts of the business because there's two other parts of the business. There's the healthcare part and the education part. And, and, so, and the healthcare one is one of them that I'm so excited about. I'm not excited about, I'm scared about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we think about what are the cancers and what are the most daunting challenges. As a country, again, we've relied upon the government to some extent uh, for healthcare. Right. We spent $3.5 trillion last year on healthcare in this country. That's 18% of our GDP. That's the entire GDP of Germany mm-hmm. just on healthcare. And yet, in spite of our spending, our healthcare outcomes are in the bottom quartile in OECD countries. In simple metrics like infant mortality and life expectancy, compounding the problem is that 85% of our healthcare dollars are spent on treating chronic issues of the elderly. Mm-hmm. Okay, COPD, diabetes, chronic healthcare, uh, chronic heart issues. Mm-hmm. Last time I looked, today we have 43 million Americans over the age of 65, and that population will grow by 70% to 72 million in the next 12 years as the baby boomers come of age. That's not sustainable. If 85% of our healthcare dollars are treating the elderly and the elderly is going to grow by 70%, we're in trouble. And the percentage of that on end-of-life care is bizarre. As the healthcare industry evolves from a fee-for-service to outcome or value base, we're going to have to retool the infrastructure 
as we go to a Medicare or Medicaid Advantage program, as we go to pay centers, as we go to this preventative health care, we need community-facing health care infrastructure. And we just finished up a fundraise where we are building out health care clinics for outcome or value-based preventative health care services that have a proven clinical track record of success as well as a financial track record. Uh, today, we've built 15 Medicare Advantage and pay centers across the country in what we would call HIPSA communities, which are health care professional shortage areas, same areas where we're buying housing, and same areas where we're building schools, these 15 clinics will serve the need of 44,000 low-income patients in this country. Our goal is to build well over 100 healthcare clinics, about a half a billion dollars, over the next uh, four years, serving the needs of over 100,000 at-risk patients in this country. Still in those neighborhoods where there's insatiable demand and nowhere else to go, except for the emergency room located nearby. I go back to are we suffering as a country from disparity of wealth? And again, disparity of wealth is a bad thing. But I think what we're really suffering from today, what's not sustainable, is the disparity of hope. Because again, you and I, I grew up as the 99%, but was able to become the 1%. Uh-huh. Okay, because I believed in the feasibility American dream. I believe that with hard work, with a great education, with affordable housing, I could get there. But the reality is, or my father got there, my mother got there. But the reality is there are tens and tens of millions of families in this country who absolutely have been foreclosed from upper mobility. There's no way when you're relegated to a high school where less than a third of the students graduate proficient at grade level, there's no way that you're going to become the 1% or even the 10%. Even the 10%. Even the 10%. Okay, a high school dropout will make $200,000 less over the career than a high school graduate and a million dollars less than a college graduate. So your outcomes, both health and educational and career, are predetermined by where you're born. Mm -hmm. That is not sustainable. That will lead to political circuses like we're seeing today. It will also lead to either a political revolution or a literal revolution in this country. Especially when those disparities hit white people instead of hit people of color, which traditionally it was all viewed as people of color, but now when the white middle class is becoming the white lower middle class, then you have the political issues we have. So again, I've never been more excited in my career, but I've also never been more scared of failure. So someone asked me recently, what keeps me up at night? Everything, because the problems are that daunting. People ask, what's the biggest risk I have running this business with 200 plus employees? It's empathy burnout. Right. I mean, you walked in the office and you saw dogs walking around. These are service dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, when we go home, and it's hard to believe that there are actually people rooting for our failure. There are people that don't want the moat to be anything more than wider and deeper. And that's disheartening, but it's also just not sustainable. Yeah. Sticking with the metaphor, you're gladiating against a huge goal, not gladiating against the goal of adding another billion dollars to your AUM. That's right. So those stakes are really high. They're inexhaustible. We agree. So a couple of other questions. Uh, A lot of your business has evolved with Magic and Andre and Eva Longoria and others. Chris Paul, I watched him play basketball last week. But these celebrities, what's this connection between celebrities and raising capital and doing your business? So we'll start with the attraction for that. Start with the statement that these are not employees. 
Mm-hmm. These are not sponsorships. Mm-hmm. These are not licensing agreements. These are partners. Right. These are people who I've sought out or they've sought us out who share the same values, the same passion, and the same frustrations with social injustice. Mm-hmm. They wanted to lend their name and their money to raise awareness to the issues. Mm-hmm. So... Eve Longoria has been a champion for civil liberties, primarily as it addresses migrant farm workers. Chris Paul for minority communities where he grew up. And Andre Agassi, who I would dare say is, if not one of my closest friends in life at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, We like to define ourselves as twin brothers from different mothers. I mean, he has led half of his life fighting the injustices of public education. As much as I think I'm interesting, the vast majority of people don't want to hear from me. But everyone wants to hear from Andre. Mm Mm-hmm. And therefore, Andre, as a partner in raising funds, is invaluable. Now, they may not invest with us, but we'll get pretty much any meeting with anybody because of that. Number one. Number two, Andre helps bridge the gap in public education for me because he has been a philanthropist for the vast majority of his life. And when there's skepticism from a public charter school that says, gee, do we really want a for-profit fund being our landlord? Andre can step over that bridge of distrust and say, let me tell you why it works and I'm telling you firsthand. Mm -hmm. Eva Longoria, as a Hispanic woman, can tell you about all the challenges that she's faced as a woman, as a Hispanic woman, or Chris Paul as an African-American male. It brings authenticity, but most importantly, it helps bridge the gap when I walk into a community. We are of the community and from the community. Mm -hmm. But most, again, it raises the awareness. Part of my job is to be an investor. Part of my job is to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And again, I realized that I, Magic Johnson, I learned years ago, that I don't need to be in photos with my partners. Because with Magic in particular, I was, a, a photographer could- Miss you. <laughs> well, he could crop me out, not only vertically, but also horizontally. Right. So you'll see there's lots of pictures of Magic on the web with a hand on his shoulder, because I would always put my hand on so I couldn't get cropped out. Uh-huh. But that's why these are my partners in these funds. Uh-huh. And if you have to gladiate against these- humongous issues, I think you do need partners and partners other than capital and partners other than just business. So I think those faces really matter. And we have, you know, on the capital side, we have two kinds of capital. We have, and I'm both, we have the evolved capitalists, folks like the University of Michigan Endowment, who's one of our largest investors, who is not investing us to see how our social returns are, because they look to us to just to drive real alpha for their portfolios, because they need that alpha and those returns so that they can be socially responsible and provide more scholarships. Mm-hmm. So we have insurance companies, we have corporations, we have pension funds, we have endowments who look to us to generate alpha. They are evolved capitalists who recognize that doing good and doing well can be symbiotic. We also have the enlightened philanthropists, which I am. Again, a philanthropist who realized that the vast majority of givings really doesn't do more than just put Band-Aids and treat issues. And when and where there is a market-driven solution to issues that you care about as a philanthropist, it behooves all of us to take the core of your portfolio. Don't just give 5% away. Take the 95% of your endowment and invest that in impact or mission-driven investments so that you can get a double bottom line. You get to do good and do well. So I would say that our investors are Mm 50-50. I would say that 70% of our investors are across all three platforms, education, housing, and healthcare. Mm Mm-hmm. So, last couple questions. Is there anything we're missing talking about the company and the company that you're leading and how you've created it and the person that comes to work every day in your shoes versus the person that came to work every day in those days when your daughter said you weren't happy? A lot of those people are the same people. 
because a number of the people that had worked with us over at Canyon mm-hmm. on the various social impact funds joined us over here. Right. We continue to expand, and we're finding that people want to work here. Again, you ask, you know, my daughter always goes, you know, how am I going to be as happy as you are in my career, Dad, now? Wow. Right. So she okay, said, I come home giddy. I said, you know, happiness and success are defined differently by different people. And I tell people over and over again is happiness won't come from money. Happiness will come from a satisfaction of doing a job well done. And if you can find a career where you love what you do, you're never going to work a day. And when you find a career where your accomplishments are aligned with your values, I get up every day excited. Mm-hmm. I can't say that about a lot of my friends in life at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited. The people that come here have a chance to change the world. They also have a chance to make a lot of money because we are structured as private equity real estate funds. At this point in my life, my legacy is no longer defined by how much I'm making for myself, right. but rather how much change I'm making for others. Yeah. So uh, the issues are so daunting. What I worry about as the impact sort of industry expands is I warn investors, mm-hmm. beware, because... A great impact investor recognizes that, first and foremost, they have a fiduciary responsibility to investors. Mm-hmm. Number two, make sure that they understand that the responsibility they have to those communities that have been neglected for so long. Because right. the only way to truly mitigate risk is by partnering with those communities and generating the goodwill. Right. And that's what Magic always taught me. Unless we can meet with the gangs, mm-hmm. we're not going to invest. Unless we can meet with the community leaders, the community activists, we're not going to invest. Because if a community isn't supportive of what we're doing, why would we ever invest and put our investors' capital at risk in those communities? Mm-hmm. We charge one and a half and 20. We get 20% the profits above a preferred return. And if we do a good job, there are millions of dollars of profits that are distributed to all the hardworking, passionate, and compassionate people that work at Turner Impact Capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Advice to young person, young person entering the business world. So if it's about making money, if at a young age you think the goal is to make money, I have a great piece of advice my father gave me. The first million dollars is the hardest million you will ever make. It is. It's almost impossible to make the first million. The second million is so much easier. Right? So be smart. Go out, graduate, make the second million first, and then come back and make the first million. (laughs) And I always thought that was very funny. That's a good trick. But if you want to be happy, again, I go back to find a career where you get to fight a battle. You get to fight an issue that really means something to you as a human being. Because again, if you love what you do, you really never work a day in your life. Totally agree with that. We get that in our business too. It's the pleasure of going to work, right? Exactly true thing. Hey, Bobby, this is a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you very much for spending the time. Again, I'm honored and grateful that you even consider me worthy of a conversation, (laughs) and I hope this uh, is well listened to. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 